This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Climate Action Show. My name is Vivian Langford, and salut babette. Andy and I would like to pay our respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation from whose land we are broadcasting at 3CR and the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation where we can be heard at Radio Skid Row. Welcome to the Climate Action Show on International Women's Day. The theme this year is Women in Leadership and to celebrate we're talking to two artists who lead us towards climate action – They are Janet Lawrence and Kerry Leishman. We'll also talk to a woman who started out with the Australian Youth Climate Coalition and now is CEO of 350.org, and that's Lucy Mann. But to start, I have the chair of the Climate Action Network in Australia, Victoria Mackenzie McCarg, with me. A big part of your work is training women for leadership, and I'd like you to tell us about Wella and some of the climate leaders that you'd like to celebrate today. Maybe just tell me a couple of little stories of the people we need to celebrate today. Thanks, Vivian. Wella stands for Women's Environmental Leadership Australia, and it was founded about four or five years ago by a group of women who are essentially the matriarchs or the elders of the environment movement in Australia. These women uh, ran the campaign to save the Franklin. They founded the Greens in Australia and internationally. They have been involved in establishing the Wilderness Society, in Bush Heritage, in many of the organisations that we all know and love. And they were seeing a lot of gender issues that remain around the environment and climate movements. We know that women are the bulk of volunteers and of staff members, but not necessarily in those key leadership positions. But at the same time, what we also know is that our political and societal and business leadership has overwhelmingly failed to deal with the issues of climate and and our environmental crises, and that we need a new and a different approach to leadership. We need leadership that is bottom-up, that is collaborative, that is highly networked. These are the leadership traits that we so often see in women, and in short, we need more women's leadership if we are going to be able to transform Australia's response to these crises. So that's what Wella is about. We are about supporting, empowering, and funding women's leadership for our environment and climate crises. And as the program has evolved, we've run an annual program now for several years. And in the last six months, uh, we've developed a new plan that significantly expands on the work we we want to be able to do. As we're expanding, we are seeing so many women uh, come to the fore whose leadership is just astronomical. Some of the people who've been through Wella and have credited this experience for going on to, to new change, People like Julie Life, who ran the campaign in Gloucester to stop a new coal mine, a successful campaign that they that they won, which is just amazing. People like Nicola Rivers, who found in herself the confidence to say, actually, I could be a CEO and I could do it differently in a way that works for me, having two young children. And I could step into that in a co-CEO role uh, and has gone on to now is one of the co-CEOs of Environmental Justice Australia. How do you mentor the women who come to you to lead within the power structure that we've already got, which to me seems still very patriarchal? We match people to the sorts of, of mentors that they want to see. I guess one of the real challenges that we have in changing the way that people lead and are supported to lead is is both in their own confidence, in helping women identify the ways that they want to work. There's a number of different techniques people can use for that kind of work, um, but it almost always involves support and having people around you. uh, Rarely can that change be achieved on your own. Of course, calling it out and going through formal processes, but thinking about caucusing with other women in in the workplace or or the network. Uh, So there's a range of different ways to take it on. I know you've been concerned by the climate crisis, to put it mildly, over many years. I've seen you in lots of contexts. And I wonder how a sort of bold feminist 
leadership would help us get to the root cause of climate change? Because do you feel that there's a different approach we need? Absolutely. So much of what we know of when we think of leadership has come through a, a very masculine lens. When we think of leadership, we, we often think of a hero style of leader, an individual out the front with individual goals that, that they need to achieve, leading other people behind them. It does fit a very masculine model. It's repeated through lots of leadership education and, and models that we look to, uh, to aspire to. And yet that kind of, of behaviour is also pretty associated with the sorts of destruction that we've seen, environmental destruction, with systems of patriarchy, with systems of colonisation, uh, that dominance approach. These are all underlying unfettered growth and capitalism, underlying drivers of the climate and environmental crises. Yet where we see solutions, solutions that are long lasting and that bring communities along, they are often from the bottom up, they're highly networked, they're highly collaborative, they listen to and respond to communities. Traits that aren't unique to women by by any stretch, uh, but that are very common in and commonly seen in women's leadership. So if we want to win at the scale we know is needed, create the change that we know is needed right across society, in, in the civil society, in business, in politics, we need women's leadership at that table driving different approaches to be able to get the kind of system change that we need. And we need women of all types of backgrounds and uh, representing the full diversity of the Australian community because we are also aware that within this space, women active and leading within the environment movement typically are white and middle class. And we recognise that there is extraordinary leadership to come from Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women and other First Nations women, from women of colour and from different community backgrounds and from rural and regional and working class backgrounds, as well as across different sectors. So we want to be able to support the full gamut of leadership that is available when we look to women in our communities and, and make sure that that is represented at the table, whatever that table should be. Well, I must say, over the years I've been doing this radio program, I've seen marvellous women emerge, even from the very youngest age, you know, 16 years old, and then, then they're on a platform and then they're in parliament or then they... They take a lot of leadership, and that's happening all over the world too. In France, there's a lot more of this participatory democracy, and it seems to be led by women. So thank you so much for talking to us today. We'll come back to you later in the year for a longer interview to look at Weller in more detail because it's very interesting what you're doing. So we've been talking to Victoria, and uh, thank you for launching this show. I'm Quota in the Monologue, and you're listening to 24 Hours of Women's Voices, celebrating International Women's Day on 3CR Community Radio. The voice of dissent. Smash the patriarchy! meet Janet Lawrence. She's a famous artist internationally and she created a space called Requiem this year to reflect and lament the black summer bushfires. Art helps us to see what's invisible and Janet says blindness to nature breeds indifference. I'd say she's a climate leader in that the art world didn't really want to know at first but the sheer tenderness, the scale and the science behind her installations has changed a lot of minds. With me is the Australian artist Janet Lawrence, whose requiem has been drawing crowds down the steps to an underground cathedral. Janet, would you take listeners on a tour of your water bar? Well, this is an old reservoir. It once housed Sydney's water and it's actually hidden from the street view. It was converted about 10 years ago from a complete ruin. It still has the feeling of a ruin in the garden, beautiful arches surrounding a garden, and other small garden areas within it. 
and it leads you down into this most beautiful, beautiful, sacred-like space, like a cathedral, and which is the reservoir. I have actually used this space before for a real water bar where people tasted waters to understand the nature of water and how it gets its taste. But in this case, the water bar I have is displaying toxic waters, waters that are completely destroyed by the bad neglected state of our rivers and by bushfires and floods that completely pollute the waters also. Yes, there are a lot of flasks on a kind of glass and mirror installation there and they've got various labels but I'll ask you to describe those in a minute but many parts of the bush look like they've sprung back from the recent bushfires and I've heard people say, however, it's just a ghost town. So much has been lost, even though the green shoots are there. And one of the people here in lab coats told me that it could be up to five years before some rivers are healthy again. And I want to know what ideas drove you to label all these flasks of turbid water, water with charcoal in it, water with maybe dead life, you know, dead animals in it. Well, I wanted to have my water bar in the exhibition again and but I wanted to have it in some meaningful way and I just thought uh, so much of my work is about revealing what is often invisible and people don't realize really what happens to the waters after bushfires and floods and and totally terrible years of drought and neglect and in actual fact without healthy waters we can't have healthy life on the rivers, as Bruce has been talking about. Um, we need the, the whole plant and animal life of the rivers to be living in, in connection with one another. And, of course, our rivers have been so depleted of water, and then on top of that to have a fire and the runoff of ash down rivers choking, choking the little remaining life that was in it. Um, they're in a terrible state, many of these rivers. And so I thought this was a good thing to try and reveal. And so I just went into a bit of research to understand what are the toxins that occur in the rivers and display that in some way, really, represent it in some way. Yeah. Well, the, the subject of this program is climate action. I try to report on different parts of the community taking action. And I think what you just said then, what we can't see, mm. you know, out of sight, out of mind. Yeah. And there was a little piece of writing on one, uh, Janet's put all these charred sticks, and one of them says, blindness breeds indifference. And lots of other things about seeing. You said, our world is calling to us, even a wounded world is helping us. And it's as if you, and Bruce's talk was the same. You know, they're yeah. calling on us, and yeah. the, all the audience were saying things like, "What can we do?" And, yeah. and seeing it for the first time, and seeing a map of the rivers, like the yeah. arteries in a body, and yeah. suddenly saying, "Oh, the land is a living thing with yeah. arteries. Like yeah. we're a living thing with yeah. arteries." You know, that kind of aha moment was happening, wasn't yeah. it, in there? Yeah. So, tell us a bit more about this seeing and how seeing stops that indifference, because we're really living in a country where our political system is indif seemingly indifferent or just go on with the destruction well it's obvious our political parties are going where the money takes them sadly and without realising the necessity for change although it's hard to believe they don't recognise that it's just um, for them it's the short term gain and so we know nothing will happen with them at all so we, but we know there's all this action happening underneath this is the problem. So much has been invisible. Um, the transactions of, of funding of these uh, parties that do nothing is invisible. We don't know. We, all we know is those big mining companies are giving huge amounts of money in order for them to be looked after and protected. But the other huge issue is that with something like the fires, for example, just huge vast areas where people don't go, where, which has only been for plants and animals, we, we didn't really see ourselves the terrible destruction there until 
big areas afterwards that people did go in and walk around and really reveal the horrors of it, the holocaust of it. And so I think that we, we need to actually see in order to know. And art is a way of bringing that to attention, of making visible. Look, on Friday, the Red Rebels came here from Extinction Rebellion and they did die-outs. They yes. died all over the place. <laughs> and this is part of the Requiem ceremony. There's something ceremonious and something about theatre, trying to look at this differently. But it's hard to connect this with political action. Well, I wanted this to be a space of reckoning and reflection and memorial and lament. I didn't want it to be a space of protest because I want to invite people into the incredible, um, it's a sadness, an incredible sadness and I don't want them to be, uh, I don't want to create defensive reactions, I just want people to be open to recognising and those who don't, who didn't ever know enough about it to be given an opening into the incredible enormity of the loss of all of those plants and animals. Yeah. So for the political action, I hope it comes after people recognise the enormity of this. Well, look, I've been reporting on climate action for a decade now and your work speaks to me. And I went down to Canberra when I heard about you. I was in Canberra and I went to look at your installation at the National Gallery there and there are things like sticks bandaged in white with little red threads growing through them and bleached corals. And on one gum leaf was a message, lost koala habitat. And here you've got sticks with messages on them. Yes. And in one way it had, to me, this is just my opinion over my reaction, it had a hopeless feeling, like a message in a bottle. You know, you send it out to see. But I feel that my podcasts are a bit like that too. I send out these podcasts every week, broadcasting. And, well, who listens? Who knows? Who cares? Who reacts? What's the, what's the result? We won't ne ever know. But I wanted to... You, you're really famous and you've presented internationally and do you feel that you're cutting through or how do you know? Is there a change for you in the way people are reacting to these works? I don't know whether it really cuts through in a big way but I, what I do know is that people are affected by the work and sometimes small amounts like that you feel they're worthwhile. I think um, it's been a, um, a long time for me to get acceptance within the art world that I, will, I work in this way because climate change has never been something that the art world's dealt with um, because, it, quite frankly, it, it's, it, the, the art world's been bound up in big money and big money we know is... <laughs> you know, big big companies and fossil fuel companies. And, and I mean, I, I see there's that whole side to art. But then there's a lot of artists who are really working with um, climate change now. And I mean, let's face it, art is always dealing with the issues of our time. And uh, the arts of, or in all the arts, there's been, um, it's been creeping into all the arts. And gradually it's becoming a big subject and I think that uh, now my work is being embraced in a, in a more mainstream way than it was. Um, but I feel, I do know, and I have known for a long time, that people do receive, um, I don't want to say a message, people do receive the work, they feel the work, and because I've used ways of making people giving people a more emotional response to things like uh, little sea creatures or plants that often people wouldn't realise mm. that we need to care for and, and heal, like a plant hospital, you know, and you put the plants on life support and then that people, like, get alarmed, they, they, mm. but then they realise they need caring for too. And so it's that small, tender gesture that I want to give to things in nature in order to it does it does bring about um, empathy and care I do believe that and people ah oh, it's hard to know do we affect things on the large scale probably not but a it's gradually happening 
a wave of it is happening as Bruce talks about it's happening from the ground up and as an artist I know I have to keep working in this way by working and acting it gives me hope gives a space of hope and if everybody does what they can in their own field they too generate this feeling of hope in themselves but in, in can bring it to others just to finish I'm really glad to see you on a platform with an Aboriginal yes. speaker Bruce yes. spoke yesterday yes. and today but I've been hearing a lot more from Aboriginal people yes. who want to talk about climate action yes. now and want their voice to be heard and say yes. we know the way forward we know yes. but it's, you have to have a different relationship with the land and that big map that looked like the arteries on a body just snap me into that thought like oh the land is a body I'm yes. part of that exactly. I need the water I couldn't live I a minute without exactly. water and I just feel that one woman said to me, it looks alive. Aha. Uh -huh. <laughs> uh -huh. yeah, yeah, <coughs> so we're yeah. struggling to connect with our world. I think uh, European people here in Australia, we have really ridden roughshod across it yeah. in our ignorance Terrible. and continued Terrible. ignorance is not acceptable. Arrogance. 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 Yeah. So what would action look like when we became connected? Bruce was talking, if we, we should all take on a totem. What would it look like to you as if we really took that aliveness of the land and took care for it like he said uh, uh, to me it's completely um, necessary to do that the environment that we live in the living environment right down to the soil the microbes in the soil are something we should have a knowledge of and we are it's just part of our life instead of this totally separate and invisible thing and it needs to be taught to children and encouraged and we need to have it right from the top down we need ministers for care of the, the flora and fauna and earth we need to have these care but but instead they just have a minister for the environment which simply means a minister to negotiate with um you know logging logging yeah yeah so we need the we need the opposite approach but it needs we need to demand that but we and as individuals though we can begin straight away to take that on our own little bit of soil that we have you know in our homes just to to watch that nurture that let it let things grow in that and know that we can lead up to a much bigger thing Thank you very much. We've been talking to Janet Lawrence and I think artists don't usually like to explain their work because their work is self-evident. That's their work. So please look up her work, her artwork, and if you can see an exhibition of hers. Is there something in Melbourne that's on? Uh, yeah, there's a big tree exhibition at Monash University opening on the 6th of February. Okay, go for it, Melbourne listeners. Thank you very much, Janet. Okay, thank you. Now you hear a song called Ode to Mother Earth. This was sent to me by Dominic Hess. It was written by Auntie Ruby, who launched the Beyond Zero Emissions Million Jobs Report. Look after the land, she is a mother. Honour each person, a sister and brother. Honour the elders, share with each other. Then rain will come, the land to cover. Then rain will come, the land to cover. Look after the land, she is a mother, she is a mother, honour each person, honour each sister and brother, a sister and brother, honour the elder, honour the elder, share with each other, will come the rain, will come the land to come, the rain will come, the rain will come, the land to come, look after the land, she is a mother, she is a mother, honour each mother, each mother, a sister and brother, a sister and brother, honour the Shall with each other, the rain will come to come to come to come, and rain will come the land to come. 
You're listening to the Climate Action Show on International Women's Day. Have you ever heard people say they hate wind turbines? They can't stand them in the landscape? Well, Kerry Leishman says that wind turbines create a new aesthetic. This challenges our usual ideas of landscape. But like Janet Lawrence, she doesn't put us on the defensive. Her paintings are a subtle form of climate leadership, taking us along as she comes to see the turbines as gentle giants. Her exhibition, called The New Beauty, was inspired by the wind farm at Warbra in Victoria. I was just passing by and I saw these wonderful wind turbines in the window. Some are in the mist, some are up close, others are on windswept hills, and they all seem to be in a moody kind of light. And I'm hoping that maybe some corporate types will be listening to the radio tonight and they'll buy one of her paintings because they could display them in their boardrooms or maybe in a bank foyer uh, to show that they embrace the new aesthetic. Just as in the 19th century, they might have bought a turner with its steam trains whistling in the new era. But I'm not here to sell Kerry's paintings. I want to ask her about her ideas and um, what formed her to make these beautiful paintings. So welcome, Kerry. Hello. Hi. Hi. Look, I believe you spent your childhood on a farm and that your ancestors were farming around Ballarat. I'd like to know a little bit about your childhood and your feeling for the landscape. I I spent the early part of my childhood on a sheep and cattle farm. And apparently as soon as I could walk, I used to walk out the back door and walk across half a paddock to a dog kennel and I'd, I'd sort of hang around with the dogs. And I think from a very early age, I was very... I just love the open space, and my paintings, I've always tried to to achieve a sense of space in my paintings with windswept landscapes and large open skies. The first wind t- turbines I saw were up near there. I was staying with my cousin at Clunes, and then we went out to Warbra, and I was enchanted by the wind turbines because, you know, to me they just represent a, a solution to climate change. And I did notice, however, that on the gates, farm gates around them, there were many signs saying, you know, wind turbines make us sick and Warbra's been a bit of a centre for that. Mm. Well, what were your first impressions of the modern wind turbine? Well, I, I was in Ballarat and a cousin of mine said, oh, I've got to take you out to see this wind turbine farm. I just love going out there. So I, I went out with her and I was totally and utterly blown out. I was fascinated. Uh, it felt like... I'd landed on another planet. Mm-hmm. There was a sense of surrealness about them and there was an atmosphere. And uh, I, every time I went back down to Ballarat, I'd go out there and then I started filming them and photographing them. And and I was just very interested in them in the land and, and it sort of grew from that. At first, I didn't like them. At first, I thought, oh, how can they put these here in this magnificent landscape? And then over time, I started to... Uh, changed my attitude and started to think about young people growing up and and how they would just become a part of their visual landscape. There wouldn't be any questioning about whether they were they were right or wrong. Just like the giant power lines we see and 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 various other things in the landscape. And so I sort of started to imagine it in the future. And I started it started to grow on me, and I started to paint them. Hmm. I think the people who don't like them for aesthetic reasons are really entrenched in that attitude. And I wonder if the companies who put them up um, consult the community enough. Do you think they do? Well, I feel that sometimes maybe not. I think that there may need to be more communication there as to not putting them so close to farmhouses because I know at Warbra there are there are few people look out over the landscape that their generations have farmed in and now they see these massive windmills and I can imagine people being very upset by not being able to adjust to it because they're so connected to the land that they've grown up in and now there are these big skyscrapers in their paddocks. So maybe the, co- the company should have done a lot more consulting and talking with the community before they put them up. I feel so. It's a bit like in southern Queensland with the, the gas mining. You know, there were companies that were just sort of going onto people's land and mining and, and people had really no idea what was going on at the oh, time. That's people right. weren't informed and... I really feel people really need to be informed. Mm. I, I, I believe they're a good thing and, that, and they, they have to happen, but Australia is a very vast country and um, there are many areas, maybe there could be, where there aren't so many farmhouses. 
This thing about aesthetics, though, you know, you're an artist, so you must think a lot about where people's aesthetic or subjective feelings actually come from. Do you think that there's a way of sort of, through your painting, somehow changing the aesthetics that people... I had this show at the Ballarat Regional Gallery and I had a little book there and people wrote comments into it and I was absolutely touched when I, I read the comments and there were quite a few people that had said that they changed their attitude a little bit towards wind turbines and, and that they were looking at them in a new light. And I was absolutely thrilled to read that because when I started painting them, it was I found it quite difficult because mm. uh, the scale and the clean, hard white lines are uh, against the softness of the landscape and, and, and just on a scale, how could I fit them in? in? So I was really quite challenged and that challenge sort of pushed me along and I, and I threw a few on the burn pile and some of them ended up being quite small where it looks like the landscape's dominating because... In the end, the landscape is dominating. Well, that's right. I mean, I, I, when I saw the ones, I could see the ones you're talking about, those in-your-face ones in the where they take up the main part of the frame. Yeah. But a lot of them, they're just dots on the hillsides yeah. in the background and lost in the mist. And I thought, well, this is what you're saying about winter buns. They are going to become the new norm so that we take them in as part of the landscape, which is, after all, a man-made thing. You know, it's a human-crafted thing, the landscape, really, isn't it? Yes, yes. And... and uh, Really, on the on the scale of things, they're only in various, very small. You know, there's a if you're a bird flying across the landscape, they they wouldn't there wouldn't seem to be very many. It's just that we get up close to them and they look really enormous. They are really enormous. And when we're driving past them, like when I'm driving down the Hume and I pass those ones on the hill outside of Goulburn, yeah. they look really big. But um, there's there's a gentleness about them as well. It's like they're like gentle giants. Well, I, I certainly feel that way, but then I'm, I'm very biased because I do this program and I've been thinking about it for a few years. But I wonder if there's some syndrome here. You know, in previous times, people were very alarmed by new technology and the railway in the 19th century was a sort of symbol of that. It cut a huge gash through the rural scene and yeah. the huge metal monsters coming through with steam coming out the top and... It took yes. painters like Turner to see the excitement of trains. And there's one painting I like of his called Rain, Steam and Speed. And that just has a, you can hardly tell it's a train, but there's loads of steam and, and a little bit of a bridge going across it. But it really indicates this is the new era that we're it's going exciting. to go to speed. It is exciting. And mm. you think of how people went for centuries before that on those slow coaches, you know, yes, yes. with the mud taking, you know, 20 hours to get to the next thing. Yes, <laughs> the no, I think what comes with those paintings was a real sense of excitement. Yes. But for some people, fear, fear of the unknown, what what did it mean? Mm. I think people feel like that a little, a little bit now with the wind turbines. I mean, where's this leading to? What's happening? And uh, climate change can be, it's a little bit, uh, people, some people don't believe in it or, mm. you know, it's not really black and white. Mm. And so there's areas there that are questioned. At the same time, those people, I'm not blaming country people because I've had a lot of country people on the railway and I think people are struggling with it, but at the same time, we all have such an energy-intensive life. We all want to heat our houses, we want to turn on TV and increasingly more, you know, computers and so on needing electricity. And previously, it's come from... Surely, you know, they can't talk about the 19th century coal-fired power stations as a beautiful thing. They, you know, they, they have to be got rid of and phased out, and this is the new, one of the new technologies. I sort of feel that your paintings are playing a part, like Turner's did in his time, to say, well, here they are, and there's other ways to look at it. Let's frame it as an exciting thing, or, that's right. or, or in your case, a, a gentle thing. That, that's so true, because as you said, everyone wants to be able to turn the tally on and plug in their phone and charge it and you know what happened if that didn't happen you know what's going to happen so people i really feel that people have to adjust to the times and and wind turbines are one way of doing this for sure well, what what painters would you say have influenced you you know what is or not only painters but video work and so on influences you in your aesthetics would you say earlier on when i was at art school i was very interested in the german expressionists and um and, and impressionism. One of the, the driving factors with my work is I, I love to try and capture atmosphere. And, and I think one of the, the things about the wind turbine farm was the atmosphere. And, uh, and I did put a video installation together as well for this exhibition. And 
I wanted to capture the atmosphere of approaching the wind turbine farm and, and try and capture the sort of the mystery of it and mm. the strangeness and, 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 you know, the foreignness of it in a way. And then by the end of the video, there's just canola fields with the wind turbines in the sun twirling around and birds singing. And mm. so that was a bit of a, a comment of it, it, that it's got a positiveness to it. We have to look after nature and nature will look after us. And well, that, that was the feeling I, in it. I, I haven't seen your video, but I, I believe you start off in the quite sinister way of, you know, it's a threatening new thing, but then you end up with this more benign aspect. But also in your catalogue, you said that if we abuse nature, it will abuse us. And I think even the people who are... De- into denial are also frightened of climate change and this is one you know very practical way of uh, changing that so what are your feelings about nature in in climate change you know that nature will abuse us well we might end up the bees might stop pollinating then what you know or we just um, things just may not we may not get enough rain at the right time for food to grow and 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 just genetic engineering will get more involved in that and and a, a big sadness would be to lose strains of foods that we, we nature has given us to, to become more and more man-made in a way. Mm. Oh, that's right. Well, we had many people speaking on the radio about biodiversity and, and the loss of even just one little step in the chain of things, you know, is, mm. it creates havoc. And, so I think and we'd never be able to replace it. No, no. And, and so it really needs to be looked after. Yeah. So but people don't want to look at the big picture. Well, perhaps this is where the artists can lead us. I was thinking, I'm going to interview a a writer later on, and I think some writers, you know, like you think of George Orwell with his 1984, you know, they Mm. lead you to think, and those things like Big Brother is watching become a household word. Everyone knows what that means. And I think sometimes artists find an image or a frame or a way of looking at it that can just flip people into seeing the big picture not that it's so frightened that frightening that you're paralyzed but frightening but manageable and we can try to turn it back and i think um some of those wind farmers you know you 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 say that they're farmers they're actual farmers i think of them as farmers who've got a, a wind turbine down the back of their paddock but some of them have spoken to me on the radio and said that they are actually looking forward to having the wind turbines on their farm it'll drought proof proof their place but it'll also give them a chance to take some stock off their land and revegetate a bit and, and re, reinvest in the nature, you know, the biodiversity of their land. Mm, fantastic. So I think the wind farm, as being a real farmer, is a, is a novel idea, isn't it? Yes, it is. Fantastic. But I don't know how many of those farmers think like that. Even if there's just a few, it can grow, you know. Well, that's right. I think it becomes, you know, the the money they get from the wind turbines means they don't have to overstock their land. Well, one man said, I know I've been damaging my land for 20 years, but now I'll be able to revegetate because Mm. of the the cash that's coming in from that. It's wonderful. Yeah, I think it's good. Mm. Anyway, look, Kerry, I wish you well with your painting and I hope you continue on this vein because I think it's very valuable and I hope people do buy your paintings. How? I'm worried about climate change. Are we in trouble? Don't be glum, Dave. Right now, solar, wind power, hydropower, and carbon sequestration technologies are being developed throughout laboratories all over the world. I need more information, Hal. I can't give that to you, Dave. Tune in to BZE Technology on Fridays, 8.30 to 9 a.m. on 3CR. When? Fridays, 8.30 to 9 a.m. on 3CR. Now we'll hear from Montaigne. She's a singer who I first saw at the School Strike for Climate in 2019. She's a woman leader, if ever there was one, and her song, Ready to Go, got everybody in that huge crowd absolutely hopping. I guess I'm frustrated Thinking about all the places I should have been by now And I'm endlessly waiting Feel like the barrel of dynamite Waiting for flame to come round I need a little spark And I 
350.org in Australia. I want to ask her about their Fossil Fuel Watch project, which was started during COVID last year. Welcome, Lucy. Climate campaigners need to see what we're up against. And I wonder how the picture has got clearer for you since you launched Fossil Fuel Watch. So, yeah, Fossil Fuel Watch was started in March last year, just after the COVID pandemic had hit. And essentially the project, the goal of it was to understand whether the fossil fuel industry in Australia, so coal, oil and gas companies, were trying to, I guess, take advantage of the crisis and and use that crisis in order to further their own interests. It's something that we have seen um, historically from the industry. And so we're really interested to see if that was happening. Um, 350 Australia has a long history of standing up to the, the fossil fuel industry and its influence over politics um, and so we started up that project, um, not really sure what we would find. Unfortunately, we did find throughout the last year that the fossil fuel industry has been quite aggressive in, in trying to capitalise in this crisis and try and use it as a reason to push for things that they've actually been pushing for for 10 years. So things like fast-tracking approvals of large new fossil fuel projects, rolling back regulations, so trying to accelerate the rollback of important environmental legislation, And then the other big one is asking for government subsidies and handouts. So, you know, trying to get money to get their projects up and running. So we have seen a lot of that in the last year. Um, I guess what we have also seen is that um, they've had to respond to huge momentum from um, the climate movement and um, climate justice groups and um, business and other parties who are all really moving ahead and calling for just recovery. So that's actually been really positive and exciting to see is that, you know, as much as they've been trying to make the most of the crisis, on the other side, there's this huge momentum in a positive direction as well. Well, look, we're hitting the ground running here this year, like Joe Biden. I think he his election has put everything into a new context. At least hope has risen a little bit. Yeah, it's um, so interesting. It feels like the global context has just shifted so much and And it includes Biden's election, but also, you know, we've seen net zero commitments from Japan and Korea and China in the last year and huge accelerations happening in renewable energy and the, the just recovery spending in the EU and elsewhere. So there's so much momentum. I think what the Biden election did was it meant that the Morrison government is really out on its own with the kind of prior states when it comes to climate change. And there's just so much pressure now for them to do something. And I I guess the question for us in the climate movement is what is it that they will do and how do we push for it to be as much as possible? And I think that there's no doubt that the Morrison government will have to take some action, but they're going to do, it would seem, as little as possible. And and that's really what we need to try and change at this point. I think that just coming back to the fossil fuel watch work, what's interesting about the Biden election is that um, there's a big focus early on in the movement over there in stopping donations and stopping the influence of the fossil fuel industry over his campaign and democratic campaigns. He um, committed not to take money from the fossil fuel industry or their lobbyists, um, which was interesting. And and now um, it would seem that that does embolden politicians to take action. So again, I think coming back to this question of the influence of the industry, the fossil fuel industry in our politics is really critical here as well. And one thing we are doing at the moment is in local communities, Um, There are hundreds of people who are coming together to do local consultation with their communities to ask what does a just recovery look like for you and and what does it mean to fund your future in your local community rather than gas. Um, So that's something that's happening at the moment and over the next few months, which we hope to take back to politicians so we can say at a local level, like this is our vision for what this money should be spent on. Um, and what it can do in our communities rather than giving it to gas corporations, which seems to be their current plan. (laughs) Yeah. Listeners might remember you from the Australian Youth Climate Coalition. I think that's where you started out on this. You know, had this story about gas. It's it's the death knell as far as I can see for the next generation, especially in the Beetaloo Basin and those areas, remote areas where people haven't got a chance to really mobilise as we might on the coast. For young people, what would you say the future 
is like you know why is it so important for them to rally around this idea of no gas certainly no more coal yeah absolutely and it's been fantastic to see i think the school strike movement and and lots of young activists and campaigners really leading the charge on this campaign to stop the gas-fired recovery um you know it feels like we're at this big turning point where the world is taking action on climate change and australia um has to come to the table and there are two really large fossil fuels that are holding us back you know coal and gas and um what the government is trying to do and the gas industry is trying to do is position gas as a so-called transition fuel which all the science tells us is is not correct and there's just so much overwhelming evidence that um we can transition away from gas right now and um that's what yeah will provide the jobs that we need for the future so i think it makes sense that this is such a youth-led campaign because i think that young people know that you know for the for the jobs that they want in the future and the future they want to inherit there's just absolutely no need to be supporting gas and this is the time to be driving investment um in those sustainable industries we're talking to Lucy Mann who's the CEO of 350.org and they launched this thing called Fossil Fuel Watch it's a sort of digest of media so you've had a bit of a really good look at media every day putting out all the, the cross section of media and what has become clear to you about how this sort of conservative media blocks strong climate action can you give us some examples tell us some stories that have really stood out for you in that time yeah well i mean there's such a long decades long history of the fossil fuel industry being so embedded in our in our media and in our politics and exerting that influence and i guess you know what we've observed in the last 12 months is nothing has changed in that regard even though there is so much global call for action on climate unfortunately the industry the fossil fuel industry just is still so powerful and is in the ear of our politicians some of the things that stand out one is the government appointing members of the fossil fuel corporates their leaders and executives appointing them to government bodies so for example uh they the Morrison government appointed uh this covid commission which people may have heard about that was one of the main things that we were tracking and exposing last year at 350 um and it was really just stacked with gas executives there were a whole range of people from the gas industry and then sure enough they started putting out reports recommending these subsidies for gas which is then what the Morrison government has turned into this proposal for the so-called gas-fired recovery so you see this really direct link between appointing gas executives to a government advisory body um to the recommendations and then the government's policies so so that was interesting to see um and then another thing that really stands out just last week we uh saw this story um it was sort of buried in the gossip column of uh Fairfax Media um about the Minerals Council of Australia which is one of the most notorious fossil fuel lobby groups that we have um that they are uh, hosted a dinner with Angus Taylor you know in the second or third day back at parliament house so those kinds of informal catch-ups i guess so yeah the dinners the coffees the the so-called policy forums which um very often uh, will also provide funding to the liberal party mm-hmm. or whichever party it is that's hosting it that special access is something that isn't given to community groups in the same way and is definitely a big part of i think how these groups with their influence and like what we need to fight back against as well a lot of people sort of overseas people say to me but you know why is australia such a pariah and my answer is often about the media do, do you feel that you know that the media is really not serving us well yeah i mean there's been some great reports and studies done on this i know that um greenpeace put out has put out a couple of reports called dirty power which were really interesting mm. and and people could have a look at but i mean the it all boils down to the murdoch press really there's just a huge political agenda there and you know you often see this media cycle where the a fossil fuel company or executive will give an exclusive to a Murdoch press outlet and then that will run and then there'll also be commentary from the conservative minister and so it kind of runs in this cycle which is quite effective at setting an agenda is is hugely problematic um and we've just seen it for decades now and it is going to be really important that and that story starts to shift. I think you know the best thing about I guess the way things are changing and social media and all of that is I think some of those outlets are less and less relevant in terms of how people are actually getting their news. I think the issue is that they still hold a lot of sway in terms of politicians and the press gallery in Canberra 
you know, the thing that we call the Canberra bubble. But it is encouraging, I guess, that I think more and more people are getting their news from other sources. Another gatekeeper in our society is the courts. And uh, often in your newsletter, there are some victories. You know, you mentioned where courts, for example, uh, recently you had Graham Samuels defending the community's right to take legal action against new fossil projects and the mining lobby came out saying this is all vexatious that many people who are listeners to this program, you know, community organisers, they're just being vexatious. But Samuels then said, look, this is um, these challenges are the foundation of our democracy. Do you see the tide turning in the courts here or even overseas? Yeah, litigation around climate change has been hugely important and it's so important that communities do have that right to say no to developments. I think one thing that's really interesting is that communities are um, exercising their right to oppose developments, um, but also we're seeing some really interesting ways that the law is being applied around climate change and climate impacts. So um, in addition to fossil fuel developments and development projects, looking at, for example, under human rights law, um, people's right to life and how that might be being endangered due to climate change and by extension the activities of fossil fuel companies. Mm. Um, so there's a there's a really, um, just to give a, a plug to something that we are supporting and really supportive of, there's a fantastic campaign being run by a group of Torres Strait Islanders. It's a, a claim to the uh, UN human rights body and it's making a complaint against the Australian government for not acting on climate change and it if you go to ourislandsourhome.com.au, um, all the information's there. But so that's an example of this, yeah, really groundbreaking strategic litigation, which is really pushing the envelope and ensuring that, yeah, people's human rights are protected when it comes to climate change. Yeah, we're covering that story. What new laws would you like to see to prevent fossil money corrupting the democracy? I know that's another thing that comes very clearly through Fossil Fuel Watch, that there's this corruption going on. Yeah, I think that there's a whole range of things. I mean... Australia's donations laws absolutely need to be updated so we can get the money out of politics. I think the other big area um, would be around lobbying. So Australia's transparency around yeah, who is meeting with our politicians and what are they talking about is some of the most opaque in the world. So having much better systems so we actually know who's lobbying our politicians, that's really, really important as well. And also that, you know, there's a really strong campaign out there for a federal integrity commission um, that would certainly really help as well on a range of different fronts and industries, but certainly in terms of limiting the influence of, of fossil fuel companies, that's important too. The majority of Australians really do want strong action on climate change. So then you have to wonder why it's not happening. And I guess at 350, we've always felt really clearly through our divestment campaigning, through our political campaigning that yeah, we really need to get this toxic grip of the fossil fuel industry out of our politics and that's what will really make a difference. Um, so maybe raising that with your MP um, is a good place to start. There is tonnes of good news from Beyond Zero Emissions. They're always pumping out discussion groups and reports saying just how you can't wait to get started or continue and promote, and they're promoting a lot of innovation at the moment. There's tonnes happening. Renew Economy also pops out a lot of interesting articles. But... Overall, Lucy, could you tell us, you're the head of 350.org, what momentum do you see, maybe even globally, what momentum do you see, the leading lights, good news? I mean, yeah, there's really so much good news out there. I think it's so encouraging to see, I think, the focus in the US on the Green New Deal, so the focus on jobs and climate and really, really making that connection. You know, we're at a point where the transition is inevitable, but it's a question of will it be fast enough and will it be fair enough? So it's not about whether the transition will happen anymore, but we need to make it, we need to accelerate it in Australia. And we also need to make sure it's planned and that communities are treated fairly and are able to transition in a way that supports them. This broadcast is for International Women's Day. And I must say over the 10 years I've been doing this program, I've met so many women leaders you know, young and old, some like from uh, Youth Coalition for Climate have ended in Parliament and uh, you've ended now here in this peak body. But I've met people, communities like Gloucester, you know, where they pushed back a coal mine and pushed out a gas organisation. Women are really showing up and seem to be 
having long distance capacity, I really admire. So well, who, who do you admire and what do you see for women in this? Or speak to the women in the audience about what women are giving to the climate movement. When I think of the women that inspire me, I think of someone like Millie Telford from Seed Mob, who started up Seed and is now leading this incredible organisation of young Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And I think what I find really inspiring about women's leadership is that it's about undoing kind of all the systems that have gotten into us into this mess in the first place. The kind of leadership that's got us into this mess is probably not the kind of leadership that will get us out of this mess. So I think the more that we can be transferring leadership and power to women who are really on the front lines of the crisis, the better. And, you know, that's ultimately how we're going to solve this. I found women are willing to talk about the pain it causes because a lot of those communities have fought off, you know, it's a horrendous battle sometimes to fend off these uh, fossil fuel organisations and they talk about the divorces and the mental breakdowns and the pain, you know, the communities that that fight and all that. Uh, Women are happy to talk about that and I think that makes it real and you don't, you know, you don't want to just have the idea that a campaign's an easy thing. It takes a lot and it takes a lot of collaboration and cooperativeness and so thank you very much for your organization who has had good leadership and you're now in the hot seat so thank you for your leadership in 350 australia you go to our website which is 350.org.au everything should come up there but we've got a really big campaign at the moment um, to fight back against um, these plans to give handouts to the gas industry and so there's heaps of actions you can take in your local community Um, from as simple as sending a letter to your MP through to running a consultation in your community. Um, And we've got trainings happening all the time. So definitely um, if you sign up on our website, we'll be in touch um, with opportunities to take more action. Thank you, Lucy. So that's Lucy Mann, who started off with the Australian Youth Coalition. Now she's head of 350.org and she's been speaking to us on uh, Women's Day. Thank you very much, Lucy. You've been listening to the Climate Action Show at Radio 3CR and Radio Skid Row. As it's International Women's Day, I thought I'd bring you some different aspects of women's leadership. The two artists, to me, take us into a zone where we can reflect, where we can think, where we can feel, and... That's a very gentle process. It's not like protesting with big slogans and signs. It's an invitation to think differently. And I'd like to thank those two artists, Janet Lawrence and Kerry Leishman, for their work. And a special thanks to Susan Harvey, who gave me ideas for this show. Links to the artists' work will be on the podcast summary at 3cr.org. Thank you also to Lucy Mann, CEO of 350.org in Australia. And thanks to Michaela and Raoul who helped us get this show to air. My name is Vivian Langford. Good night and good luck. This is a message of solidarity for all the women out there from Think Again on 3CR. For all the women who still, after all this time, are underpaid and undervalued, who carry most of the burden of care and work, who live precariously and carry all the risk while others walk off with the gold. This is a message of solidarity for you because you are the true gold. You are not the loot to plunder by self-entitled born to rulers. So always know your value and remember together we are strong. Goongaroo Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years we've been using direct action, citizen science and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains and the Victorian government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunakurnai and Bidwell and Monaro people and that sovereignty was never ceded. A 3CR supporter.